Welcome to Cut to the Chase, where we talk about compelling legal, regulatory, and public interest information and news. Your host is Greg Goldfarb, an attorney, entrepreneur, investor, and activist. All right, folks, it's time for our favorite podcast, Cut to the Chase. I brought Lee Reiners on to to discuss all things cryptocurrency, which continues to make the news continues to survive despite all the bad news, continues to perplex and confuse many folks. How are you doing, Lee? I'm well, Greg. How are you? I'm excellent. You know, Lee is a lecturing fellow at both the Duke Financial Economic Center and at Duke Law. And, you know, I'm thinking about back to my law school days. I see you're you're teaching fintech law and policy, cryptocurrency law and policy, financial regulatory policy, climate change and financial markets, and cybersecurity law. All amazing topics. And I'm thinking back to my law school days, there was nothing like that around. Yeah, times have uh, times have changed, you know, but um, it's a lot of fun. I like the, the variety. Uh, and the students are really into this stuff, you know, so I feed off of uh, their energy and certainly... Uh, the news as it pertains to uh, crypto and fintech and cyber over the last couple of years has given us plenty to talk about in the classroom. So it makes for a lively discussion, which uh, which I appreciate as a professor. You don't want to certainly you don't want to be just lecturing, uh, hearing yourself talk for, um, you know, for an hour straight. At least I don't. So um, so I like the students to participate. And, you know, when the stuff is in the front page of the of the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, it, it helps get folks involved. And yeah, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I am, I'm going to ask you in a little bit what the students are most intrigued about. Like what's, what have they, you know, done to pique your curiosity? But before I go on to that, I sort of want to ask the audience, although it's not a participatory audience, a trivia question. What do, aside from the fact that these are famous people, what do Tom Brady, Larry David, Kim Kardashian, Shaquille O'Neal all have in common? And the answer is they're all getting sued for their cryptocurrency promotion. And we're going to get into that. What's go, why, why are they getting sued and FTX and all the collapses? And, you know, I mean, with all this stuff, uh, Bitcoin seems to stay alive. We're going to get into that also. So let's get into I want to try to talk to me about your students, your students. What in the, in the crypto space, what have they, you know, said or asked or done that's that's made you like scratch your head and like say wow that's fascinating yeah that's a great question greg i mean so you know i teach law students and you know by definition there's you know law students i think are are risk averse right there's you know obviously there's students who are generally interested in in the law but um you know it's kind of also something that you know young people do and they're not quite sure what you know what else they want to do or what else they're they're uh, they're good at, but you know they know that uh, law school certainly at a place like Duke, um, you know is is a path to a, a pretty decent uh, lifestyle. So, you know I always ask my students on the first day of class uh, in the cryptocurrency law and policy course, you know I ask them how many of you own crypto or have ever owned crypto? Raise your hand. And you know you'd be surprised. It's less. I'd say it's probably about a quarter of the class and. You know, my class is around 25 students or so. Um, so it's less than a less than a quarter. Uh, and that's been pretty steady uh, over the years. Now, 
if I were to go across the street at Duke to the business school and ask students there, um, you know, in any given class, really, how many of them have owned cryptocurrency, you would probably see all the all the hands up, right? And uh, not to uh, to cast aspersions on business school students, but the reality is, is that they, you know, they tend to chase trends. Um, so, uh, and certainly crypto has been a, a growing trend. So, you know, back to my law students, I think most of them are just curious about it. Very few are coming in with, you know, really hardened views or, you know, are passionate about it. You know, they've heard about it, of course, you know, they probably have a friend or a relative who's like really into it and has talked their ears off. And I'm sure folks listening, you know, have been at a at a cocktail party or, you know, or somewhere else. And, you know, they've encountered someone who was, you know, all in on crypto and is, you know, talking to them about how how great it is and how they need to get into it and whatnot. So my law students ha have that, you know, but we're also at the point now where pretty much every major law firm has uh, a fintech practice group. And within that fintech practice group, um, you know, they are serving uh, you know, crypto clients. And so a lot of students view this as an opportunity to develop, um, you know, specific expertise that they can deploy then when they go into the, the workforce. And at Duke Law, you know, most students do go on to careers in, in big law initially. And I think that's what makes it really exciting and fun to teach these students, because I say, look, right now, no one has started off their career as a crypto law or regulatory expert, right? People who are doing it now have kind of come into it through a variety of different pathways um, because it's just so new. And so by taking my class, you are a de facto at the end of it, crypto law expert, crypto regulatory expert, and you can hit the ground running um, is, you know, no matter where you land. Um, and certainly uh, crypto firms uh, are in desperate need of high quality legal advice. Um, you know, frankly, they haven't been getting very good legal advice in my uh, opinion. In many cases, these firms have been uh, willfully ignoring uh, their uh, their lawyers' advice, but nonetheless, um, you know, there's an opportunity for my students to to really make an impact immediately. So, you know, I don't think that they necessarily have um, you know very fixed views on on crypto. I've had a few over the years that are you know pretty into it and think it's you know gonna be the, the future of money and this and that. Um, but most of them are just uh, are just curious. And that's what I think makes for a fun classroom dynamic. Nice, nice. And so it's funny that they can come out and actually be at the top of the food chain, you know, in the regulatory. And that's, I think, a very big um, burgeoning area. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that the cryptocurrency world, you know, they're not listening to their attorneys and there's no regulation. So it's the Wild West. Yeah, I mean, it certainly is the Wild West. I would uh, rebut the, the the point about there's no regulation. I mean, there's actually a lot of regulation. Um, you know, it's just a lot of these firms either aren't aware of it or, you know, choose to ignore it. Um, you know, either way, that means that they need, um, you know, a good lawyer, which, you know, hopefully I'm, I'm training. And and that's really my, you know, my background's in financial regulation. I'm actually not a lawyer, um, but I worked at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York prior to, to coming to Duke. Um you know, primarily doing large bank supervision and then some regulatory policy work. So I really come at this issue from, you know, financial regulatory lens. Now, as I've gotten further into the weeds, of course, um, you know, I'm fully immersed in the securities law implications, um, you know, you name it. So really everything related to, to crypto, the legal issues, the regulatory issues, the policy issues, 
Um, you know, I've uh, I've explored it in depth. You know, I've testified uh, on uh, crypto regulation twice in Congress. I was at the Senate Banking Committee in February. So the House Financial Services Committee in March, they created a new uh, subcommittee on uh, digital assets. So I was at the very first uh, hearing of that that new subcommittee. So I think, you know, kind of my personal journey here is also reflective of the fact that, you know, there's really not a lot of folks out there who kind of understand, you know, one, the technology behind crypto, two, the financial regulatory landscape, how crypto fits or doesn't fit, and then three, the legal uh, implications of, of crypto and, and its various aspects and how it's used. So um, so I think I kind of bring all that to the, to the table and, and hopefully that's what I'm training my students to do as well. All right. So most, you know, I'm hearing in the newspapers, it seems like once a month, FTX, BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager Digital, Three Arrows Capital. I'm sure there's others that I'm missing that all have essentially collapsed. Yeah. Um, some have gone into bankruptcy. Others are, I, I don't even know. They're, they're actually in criminal court, but like what is there a common theme is this indicative of uh the problems with cryptocurrency what's what's going on with all these collapses yeah there's a lot of things going on um in each one of those cases you mentioned is going to have an idiosyncratic component but i think there's more in common um than there is distinct and what's in common is at the end of the day, these are crypto firms. Uh, these are firms that are specifically focused on, uh, exclusively focused on cryptocurrency. And the thing about crypto, there's a lot of things about crypto that are different than traditional finance, but these are assets, if you want to call them that, that can be created out of thin air, right? That they are not tied to any productive purpose in the quote unquote real economy. So if we think of, you know, normal financial assets, we think of things like stocks and bonds, right? Uh, you know, if you own a share uh, of a company, um, you know, you own part of that company, right? And that entitles you to things like dividends and, and whatnot. So you're expecting, you know, but you own a piece of that company, you get to participate in the governance of that company, um, you know, through voting your shares and whatnot. Um, but there's a real company with real assets behind that those shares, uh, you know, similar if you own um, a bond, right? Um, you know, a, a bond entitles you to uh, a fixed stream of payments, um, you know, from a company, again, a real company in the real economy. You know, anyone with a computer um, can mint crypto assets. There's no, you know, there's really no issuer um, per se behind a lot of these these things. And so when you can create assets out of thin air, that allows you to grow spectacular, spectacularly fast. Um, and it also allows you to accumulate a lot of leverage, right? Because then you can create assets out of thin air and then, you know, maybe, you know, send out a few tweets, right? Kind of, you pump up the value of these things, you get people to invest, drives the price up, and then you can kind of pledge them as collateral for, um, you know, for loans and things of that nature. So, you know, it really, you know, when you look at kind of, financial bubbles over history, right? One of the, the commonalities is, is leverage, you know, borrowed money. And with crypto, these firms were able to take on a lot of leverage in a very short period of time. So, you know, I always come back to the the question, which is, you know, why are these things, you know, worth anything at all, right? You look at Bitcoin today, um, you know, around $30,000. Well, why is it $30,000 and not $100,000 or not, you know, $5, right? What's the valuation methodology? 
that you're applying? And I have yet to get a good answer on that. And I think, you know, these are assets that trade entirely on sentiment. And the thing about, you know, sentiment is that it can be extremely fickle, right? Just, you know, Elon Musk sends out a tweet about, you know, buying Bitcoin or buying Dogecoin and the price goes up 20%, right? And then he, you know, sends out another tweet a few weeks later about how he's, you know, getting rid of it. Or he goes on Saturday Night Live and says it's a hustle, right? Then the, the price goes down. I mean, that's reflective of, you know, these are estimates that assets are based on nothing but but sentiment. So, um, you know, it's a bit of a long-winded answer there. But, you know, again, going back to these, these companies, um, you know, crypto has sort of gone through various cycles, right, over over time. And I think it's important to keep in mind that Bitcoin, the first and most popular cryptocurrency, was created in, in 2008. The first Bitcoin transaction occurred in January 2009. So we're 14 years into to this cryptocurrency business. You know, that's not new. That's, you know, by technology standards, it's pretty old. So we've seen various cycles. And what happened is that, you know, prior to the pandemic kind of crypto had been depressed from a price standpoint for a few years. Then the pandemic happens. People are at home. They're bored. They're looking for something to do. By the way, the federal government passed multiple rounds of fiscal stimulus that sent direct checks to millions of American consumers. And so many of these people, uh, primarily young men found their way to crypto. Um, and guess what? It's not the only thing they found, right? Remember the game, you know, the meme stock craze, the GameStops, the AMCs of the world. Um, and then we also have to keep in mind that, you know, for most of crypto's history, it existed in essentially a zero interest rate environment, right? The Federal Reserve pushed interest rates to zero post-2008 financial crisis and kept them there. Um and then when the pandemic happened, they actually, you know, pushed rates down, you know, even, even lower. And so anytime you have, you know, loose monetary policy like that near zero interest rates, you see prices for all speculative assets go up. So there's kind of a combination of factors uh, that really came to bear and pushed crypto prices to, to, you know, stratospheric heights in 2001, you know, but then we saw inflation rear its ugly head. And then at that moment, Crypto prices plummeted, as did prices for other riskier assets like tech companies. Um, and then once the prices started to go down, you saw a number of these crypto firms, you know, swimming naked, so to speak, right? You know, the famous Warren Buffett quip, when the tide goes out, you see who's swimming naked. And so these elevated prices were able to conceal a lot of just bad behavior, poor governance, poor risk management, excess leverage, you know, you name it. And so once prices went down, then it was just one domino after another. And the fact that, you know, it was one domino after another reflects how tightly interconnected the crypto economy is, right? So FTX was not an isolated incident. You know, you mentioned a number of firms that failed prior to FTX and there are other crypto companies that failed after FTX. And one of crypto's main problems is that there's no lender of last resort to step in and stop the hemorrhaging when something like that occurs, right? Of course, in the traditional financial system, we have the Federal Reserve, who's able to provide emergency liquidity assistance to otherwise solvent firms, and that provides a degree of you know calm to the market, right? Well, of course, the Federal Reserve is not going to backstop crypto firms, nor should they. Um, 
so you had no, you know, there's no way to kind of catch the falling knife. Um, and so, you know, and here we are. And, you know, as you mentioned, prices have stabilized. There haven't been in the last couple of months any, you know, very high profile failures, but, you know, I'm sure there's going to be another type of FTX in the, in the near future um, because, you know, crypto has, has done this repeatedly throughout its history. So these firms, what was their pitch to get clients? I mean, when I, I, I'm, I've had crypto for a number of years. Um, you know, and I kind of would always hear about staking and the lending and like, these high rates. And to mm -hmm. me, I was like, they're not lenders, you know, I mean, this is not a bank. They're not, you know, they don't have that. I'm a bank. I'm, you know, under a regulatory umbrella or whatever. And I just, to me, what were these firms doing? Were they just going out and telling people, Hey, if you give us your crypto, you know, your crypto is going to kick out 8% interest. Yeah. Is that basically the gist of it? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, they're all selling the promise of returns, right? I mean, at the end of the day, that's what they were doing. Now, how they were um, generating those returns or claiming that they were generating those returns, right, is, you know, can, can vary. But, you know, there's the old adage that if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And yeah. certainly that was the case when it came to most of these crypto firms. And I think it's telling that, you know, many of these firms used language and terms from the traditional financial system intentionally to get customers to think of them as like a traditional regulated financial institution. So look at Voyager, for instance. They referred to themselves as a broker, a crypto, a digital asset broker, right? And I think we're all familiar, you know, with the term broker. You know, FTX, you know, called themselves a crypto exchange, you know, as do most cryptocurrency, you know, the exchanges, right? I, I prefer the term platform, um, you know, because exchange has, you know, real regulatory connotation, right? We think of the New York Stock Exchange, for instance, as an exchange. Um, well, of course, the New York Stock Exchange is very different. Not only in how it's structured, but how it's regulated compared to these cryptocurrency exchanges. Um, you know, some of them refer to themselves as lender. You know, sell, you know, you look at Celsius, um, a particularly egregious example, Alex Mashinsky, the CEO of Celsius, you know, used to go around wearing t-shirts saying banks are evil, right? I mean, that was kind of his selling point is that we provide a bank-like service, but we're not a bank. Um, and you know, we can give you 18% yield. We can promise you 18% yield at a time when interest rates in the real economy were barely above zero, right? So how is that possible? How is it possible to generate 18% yield? Well, it wasn't. It was a, it was effectively a, a Ponzi scheme. So all of these businesses were a bit different. So, you know, let's just take Celsius again. Um, you know, let's say you had crypto, um, you know, you would lend it to, to Celsius. Uh, Celsius would then lend it to uh, your crypto to, um, you know, other uh primarily crypto entities, so crypto trading firms, um, and it would capture a spread, right? You know, it would pay you, and then, you know, people would pay Celsius to borrow the crypto, um, and they would pass that on on to you. Well, you know, again, most it was mostly structured as a Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, FTX, how did FTX make money? Well, you know, just like any, well, or how was it supposed to make money, at least, um, by uh, transaction fees, right? Just like any exchange, um, the more transactions that occur, um, you know, the more fees that are uh, generated. Now, you know, FTX also had, um, you know, a lending program 
uh, as well, similar to, to Celsius. So, you know, again, these are all variations of things that we see and are familiar with in the traditional financial system. The difference, of course, is that they occurred uh, outside the regulatory perimeter where there was very little by way of customer protections, investor protections. And I'll end on, on this, this note, Greg. I think one of the great ironies of crypto is that for a technology premised on disintermediation, right? You go back to the Satoshi white paper, which kickstarted this whole thing. Halloween 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto posts a nine-page white paper to a cryptographic message board. It's all about peer-to-peer -peer payments without the need for any trusted intermediaries, right? That's what crypto, the foundation of crypto, you know, was and, and is. Well, all these firms that I've just talked about, guess what? They're intermediaries, right? So all that the crypto industry has done is replace one set of intermediaries, primarily regulated banks, brokers, exchanges, with another set of intermediaries that are completely unregulated. Um, and so, you know, given that, I don't think any of us should be surprised at the state of affairs that we currently find ourselves in. All right. I just want to go quickly onto Satoshi. And like they like I hear consistently from a lot of my friends from the Northeast, all sordid roads end up in Miami. So <laughs> I, I, I was not really following the story that in-depthly, but I, I believe that in South Florida, there was a lawsuit where the the alleged person who was Satoshi, that became an issue in the case. Were they Satoshi? And there was a decision on that. Did I, did I, did I get that story right? Um, you know, I'm not familiar with the particulars of that story. I mean, many people over the years have claimed to be Satoshi. <laughs> yeah. Um, so there's, there's, you know, no, and just like many people have claimed to be the second coming of Jesus Christ. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and none of these people have been, you know, verified to be the, the, the real person. So we still don't know. I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, when I talk to my students about, you know, crypto and obviously I have, you know, you have to start with the Satoshi white paper, right? I mean, that's kind of the origins. And, you know, I think, and I say, like, think of how incredible this is. You know, here we are, you know, in a matter of years, a multi-trillion asset class was created by someone that we have no idea who they are. Yeah. Right. Um, and so we don't, I mean, so many people have claimed we don't know who they are. Um, you know, we do know that they're sitting on, you know, billions uh, of um, of Bitcoin, you know, so like we know, you know, Satoshi's, you know, public address um, and they haven't moved their their Bitcoin. So, um, you know, many have speculated and I'm familiar with all the, the litigation, but uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, obviously someone knows, um, but uh, or presumably someone, you know, did know. Um, but the public is still not aware of who uh, who Satoshi is, and it, it adds to the to the mystique of this whole thing. Yeah, it's it's a it's a great story. It's, it almost sounds fictional. Um, all right, so FTX again, Miami, the Miami Arena. Yes, yes. Well, as FTX. you said, you know, Miami, Florida, a, a sunny place for shady people. Shady people, not me, but yeah, I operate under an umbrella. But FTX. All right, so Sam Bankman Fried again, one of these platforms, exchanges, or whatever that you know, mm -hmm. gets into big trouble. This guy's, I mean, is he in trouble criminally? Do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he's, yeah. In, he's in big trouble. He's in big, big, big trouble. Um, You know, look, uh, 
you know, Sam, it's pretty clear that Sam Bateman Freed is, is going to go to jail. Um, you know, it, it's just a matter of for, for how long, um, you know, given the charges brought against him and, you know, the dollar amount of, um, uh, you know, customer losses, you know, theft, really. Uh, you know, he's he's conceivably looking at, you know, spending the rest of his life um, behind bars. So, um, you know, we have uh you know securities fraud conspiracy to commit conspiracy fraud um you know violating campaigns campaign finance laws um bribery so the department of justice is alleging that sam bankman fried bribed uh, a chinese government official um so there's a, a laundry list of charges that have been brought against him um we know that several of his former top executives including his former girlfriend carolyn ellison um uh are working with prosecutors um you know she and his his fellow co-founder gary wang have, have already pled guilty and are cooperating you know the new york times recently reported on just the the extraordinary volume of evidence that they've accumulated um you know apparently it's unlike anything um that some of these prosecutors have seen before i mean everything from you know, emails to Slack messages to text messages to you know messages on on Discord. I mean, I mean Sam Bankman-Fried was you know he would literally talk to anyone. You know, communication with reporters. I mean, even after FTX failed, um, he was tweeting. You know, he started a newsletter. He started his own Substack, um, and so uh, and communicating with re with reporters. So there is just a, a overwhelming amount of evidence out there. Um, you know, frankly, I don't know, you know, people have talked about a potential plea deal. Uh, you know, I don't see why the government would even offer him one, to be honest with you. Um, you know, maybe it provided that he was willing to spend 20 years or so, you know, maybe it would, it would spare the, uh, you know, the uh, administrative expense of, of going to trial. But, um, you know, from my standpoint, it, it seems like they have the the good. So, uh, you know, that's going to that happen in October. Um, and of course, there's also pending civil litigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, and that will commence after the um, after the the criminal proceedings. Um, but you know, certainly, it's not looking good for um, Sam Bankman-Fried at the moment. Nor is it good. Uh, nor is it looking good for the customers. Yeah, and that's yeah. I mean, what what approximately how much loss was there? And then my yeah. question is, where is that? Where's that? Where are, where yeah, where's the money, there? right? That's the, the money. Somebody's yeah, got it. Yeah, where's the money? That's always the question. Um, so you know, we're still learning. Um, and you know, every week that this the current CEO John Ray is is kind of and his team are providing some more information. But um, you know, at approximately around eight billion dollars, right? Eight eight with a B um is this is the size of their hole in in um in their balance sheet. Okay. And and of course, that's a, a lot of money. I mean, there's over a million individual claimants. Um, and uh, and I think it's important to, to keep these people in mind. Um, you know, obviously, the figure of Sam Bankman-Fried himself attracts, you know, most of the media attention. But, you know, there are millions of people, including, you know, thousands of folks here in America who um, lost everything, right? It's really lost more than they could afford to lose. I mean, you're talking, you know, um, retirement money, uh, you know, your you know children's education money. Um, and, um, and it's really not looking good for, for those folks, just given the history of, of, um, of crypto firm failures. I mean, you can go all the way back to, 
2015 when the Japanese-based crypto exchange Mt. Gox got hacked um, and everyone's money was stolen. And and those customers still haven't gotten anything. So, um, you know, John Ray, the current CEO, is going to do everything he can, um, you know, to to uh, recoup, you know, those, you know, sell assets and and, and make those uh, uh, creditors, you know, customers, um, you know, try to restore, you know, some of their their money. But um, you know, it's it's, it's looking pretty uh, pretty bleak. So, uh, you know, we can get into kind of how the the fraud happened, but. Um, you know, but uh, in essence, I think, you know, we can say that he stole uh, $8 billion of his customers' money. Yeah. So this wasn't really about over leverage. This was just a bad. Well, yeah. I mean, it started off that way. Yeah. And that's, you know, a, you know, one of the interesting aspects of it. Yeah. What thing, one of the things that surprised me is someone who's really, um, you know, I spent a lot of my, my time immersed in these crypto policy debates. Um, you know, speaking with folks on Capitol Hill, speaking with Hill staffers, speaking with folks at regulatory agencies. Um, and I was surprised at sort of how quickly the narrative um, changed post FTX. I mean, you kind of thought that, you know, for a while, like, hey, this might be like kind of the death knell of crypto, right? Um, or certainly, you know, um, policymakers are set to crack down. You know, but the crypto industry, um, you know, there's a lot of money, a lot at stake. Um, you know, they're pretty effective from a PR standpoint. And the way they kind of spun it was like, you know, look, this is just, you know, fraud. I mean, this is just a bad apple, right? And, you know, fraud occurs in traditional, you know, fraud occurs everywhere. You know, I mean, fraud occurs in the traditional financial system. And we don't say we should, you know, ban stocks or, you know, whatever it may be. Um, you know, so... Um, you know, so, you know, crypto is here to stay and we need to, you know, kind of embrace this industry because it's the future of this, that, you know, you name it. Um, and, you know, that unfortunately, um, from my standpoint, you know, that uh, that logic has has taken hold uh, amongst many folks on on Capitol Hill. And my rebuttal to that is, yes, this is fraud. Right. I mean, you know, using customer money to cover up bad trades, which is what happened here, right? And just to, you know, just to explain for all the listeners, you know, FTX consisted of, you know, multiple, you know, legal entities and kind of business units. Uh, they had an affiliated crypto prop trading firm, right? Crypto hedge fund called Alameda Research, right? Fully owned by Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, the CEO was his, you know, on again, off again, girlfriend, Carolyn Ellison. And, they made uh, a series of bad bets um, and they had borrowed heavily to, to make those bets. And so when they had to sort of pay off their creditors, they didn't, they didn't have the funds to do it. And so uh, what Sam Bankman Free did is he essentially um, lent customer assets to Alameda so they can pay off their bad bets. Okay. Now Alameda collateralized that borrowing of customer assets through uh, a cryptocurrency called FTT, which was FTX's um, exchange token. So FTT was a token that was completely controlled by Sam Bankman-Fried. It was just minted out of thin air. So it was just, you know, funny money. Um, and he was able to kind of keep this fraud going for a while um, because FTT did have a tangible market value. And if customers were ever trying to withdraw money from FTX, he could just, you know, sell, he could mint FTT, 
sell it for dollars and give those dollars back to um, customers who are withdrawing their crypto from FTX. Now, what really kind of, and it was quick the way it happened, but ultimately what kind of popped the whole FTX bubble was once um, you know FTT sort of came under question. So there was a crypto news site called Coindesk that published a, I think it was an Alameda balance sheet that basically said like Alameda was holding on to a whole bunch of this FTT. That was kind of like their main asset. Um, and, you know, and obviously everyone knew that, you know, that FTT was probably given to them by Sam Bankman-Fried. And then you had the CEO, um, Chengpeng Zhao, CZ, as he's commonly known, of the largest crypto platform, largest crypto exchange in the world, Binance, once that that leak balance sheet came out, he tweeted out that he was going to start to sell his FTT because they, through a previous deal, um, Binance had acquired a, a you know a lot of FTT, and so once he started to sell and announced that he was going to sell, then the value of FTT plummeted, and this whole scheme, you know, quickly unraveled, uh, and then you know customers, you know, it was kind of like a classic bank run. Customers are trying to take their money out of FTX. And there's no way for FTX to to make them whole. So, you know, that's a you know kind of the the Cliff Notes explanation of, of what happened. So, you know, again, there's a, a common element to this, which is using customer funds right to cover up bad trades. We see we saw this with MF Global and John Corzine, right? Um, you know, back in geez, what was it, 2012, 2013 timeframe. Um, but this whole thing was made possible by crypto, right? You know, this was collateral, you know, these loaning customer funds was collateralized by this token that they minted out of thin air, right? FTX, when it failed, was like two or three years old. It went from zero to a $32 billion company, right, in two years. Well, that's only possible in the world of crypto, right? So crypto fueled FTX's meteoric rise and the nature of crypto is what also allowed it to collapse in a blink of an eye. And so, um, you know, I just push back against these folks who say, well, this is just, you know, garden variety, financial fraud. There's nothing unique to crypto. You know, no, crypto was actually essential um, to, to this whole thing. And uh, and obviously that's gonna, you know, I think play out more once we um, get to the criminal trial. So one of the interesting uh, issues that I think arose from these platforms going, filing for bankruptcy, was the news that it imparted to the customers, which is that your cryptocurrency that you're that you sent to these platforms is not yours. Yeah. It's theirs. So yeah. they go into bankruptcy, trustee gets a hold of it, and you're like, so I know there was a recent ruling maybe a couple of months ago, at least in, for one of these exchanges, that said the, the coins were the customers. Did I get uh, the right? And where no, are it was the other way around. So I think the Celsius bankruptcy judge said that um, that the uh, the coins belong to the to the estate, the bankruptcy estate, and that and that customers um, were just unsecured creditors, general unsecured creditors, and um, and yeah, I mean, so a lot of folks found this out the hard way. Um, you know, this was was not a shock, um, you know, to me or, or to anyone else who who had kind of been following the legal and regulatory issues with with crypto and these firms. Because it, it flat out says this in the terms of service, um, you know, when you create an account at FTX or Celsius or you name it, um, you know, it, it says that, um, you know, uh, that cryptocurrency you purchase on these platforms, you know, can, you know, belong, essentially belongs to these, 
to these platforms and they can do with it as they as they please. And, you know, what this meant then, of course, is once these firms failed, um, you know, these customers had to get in line um, yeah. in the bankruptcy estate. And, and of course, you're, you know, you're having average Joe's, you know, try to navigate the complexity of the, the bankruptcy process. I mean, good luck. And so, you know, you've actually, you know, what's interesting you've seen spring up is uh, uh, a secondary market for trading um, claims. Um, so, you know, if you actually have a, you know, let's say you had a hundred dollars stuck on Celsius, um, you know, you could sell that for, you know, three dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Um, you know, on, on, uh, various, uh, uh, platforms. So including, you know, and some of these platforms are being created by people who had previously ran crypto firms that failed, right. Yeah. Which is, you know, crazy. Um, so That's yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, yeah, it's it's really it's really troubling, and of course, you know that's a very different state of affairs than obviously banks, right? I mean, provided that you're under the two hundred fifty thousand yeah, dollar deposit absolutely. insurance threshold, I mean, you're going to get your money back if the bank fails. If your broker fails, right? If you have an account at Charles Schwab, um, you're covered under uh, CIPIC, the Securities Investor Protection Corporation, right? That covers you know to make sure that you still have access to your assets. If a, if a broker um, fails, well, again, none of those protections um, apply in the uh, in the cryptocurrency context, and you know millions of people found that out the hard way. Yeah, so I guess the new phrase that we're going to have to create, maybe it's already been created, is the the crypto version of pennies on the dollar. What what is what would pennies on the dollar be in the crypto world? I you know, a coin is a coin. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, it's still, you know, the crypto world still uses the U.S. dollar as a numeraire. I mean, everything is denominated in dollars. So I think the phrase still uh, still holds, you Applies. know. Just, yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. well, you know, I was just trying to be cute, tongue-in-cheek. All right, Well, now, if you can think of something, I'll, you know, run with it. All right. <laughs> Give me a couple of days. So, all right, you told us that FTX, criminal proceedings, then the SEC is going to go after mm -hmm. heavily. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting a lot of, you know, a lot of emails from my world, the mass toward class action world, that yeah. there's class action going on against FTX. And of course, my first question is, well, what are they going to get? You know, I mean, uh, is this $8 billion under a rock? Is it in a, in somebody's bed? Is it in the desert? I, you know, so that raises the issue of Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. Larry David, Tom Brady. Why are why are they all of a sudden involved in this litigation? Yeah, I mean, so I think you know your listeners are, are going to be familiar with um, you know a number of the FTX celebrity endorsers, right? You go back to the 2002, 2022 Super Bowl. You know there was a famous um, you know uh, ad involving Larry David. Where you know Larry David throughout history um, is is dismissive of you know various you know inventions right like you know the wheel and fire and and you know and whatnot and obviously things that are very useful and then it kind of you know fast forward to present time and someone's in his office you know pitching him on on crypto and buying it on FTX and he's like eh, I don't think so you know and I'm never wrong about these things uh, and you know and it was a, a, a clever ad. Um, certainly got a lot of folks talking, uh, you know, after the, the Super Bowl, I think it was the only commercial that Larry David has ever, ever been in or any endorsement he's ever been in. Um, you know, and, and so, um, you know, and you go back to the, you know, they had the FTX bought the name and rights to the Miami Heat Arena. Um, so, you know, FTX really leaned heavily on 
celebrity endorsers. Uh, and I think it's worth taking a step back and, and noting that, you know, the whole reason that companies pay celebrities to endorse their products is they think it will help generate sales, right? Otherwise, there would be no such thing as celebrity endorsers. Uh, so, you know, by that definition, you know, there's pl plenty of people out there that bought crypto uh, on FTX because of, you know, they saw a Steph Curry commercial or a Larry David commercial or uh Shaquille O'Neal ad or or you name it. And if you go and you look at uh the actual uh content in some of these commercials, you know, in, in light of what we know now, I mean it's very troubling. I mean, the the Steph Curry ad, that commercial, um, you know, the whole ad is premised on he's not an expert on crypto. But with FTX, he doesn't need to be an expert because he has everything he needs to buy and sell cryptocurrency safely. Right. I mean, that's the premise of the ad. And that was generally the theme of kind of all the the ads. Right. And it was sort of playing on the fact that, you know, most people are kind of, you know, uncertain about crypto, maybe kind of aware of some of the the shadiness that that had um, you know been going on in the crypto industry. But, you know, but FTX was differentiating itself as the trusted crypto intermediary. And how could you trust it? Well, because they had these brand name celebrities. They had Tom Brady. They had Steph Curry. I mean, they had, you know, these people that that folks looked up to and uh, and admired. And they assumed that, well, you know, uh, FTX must be safe. It must be legit because, you know, otherwise, why would Tom Brady, who's got, you know, tens of millions of dollars or, you know, Steph Curry, um, you know, why would they do this, right? Um, so that's the 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 foundation there of what FTX was trying to do was sort of use these celebrities as a way to um you know kind of wash their image uh and stand out as the the trustworthy crypto intermediary so i you know i think it's fair to ask well what gave these celebrities the assurances that what they were saying about FTX being the safe place to buy crypto was true right so um so that's the kind of the the foundation. I mean, we can get into the specific, you know, legal issues and what's really going on with the the FTX class action, and, and there's similar class actions in in other contexts. You know, uh, Voyager, um, you know, Binance, for instance, um, is that, you know, one, the they were touting illegally touting um, securities. Okay, so. Uh, by law, if you are promoting a security, including an unregistered, you know, even if it's an unregistered security, you have to disclose the nature and the amount of that, of how you're, of co that compensation, right, of that arrangement. Um, but then, two, it's also just illegal uh, under the general anti-fraud uh, provisions of securities laws to uh, solicit purchases of unregistered securities right and that's really what was was happening here and so you know when we look at the crux of these claims you know we have to ask ourselves was ftx listing unregistered securities i think the answer to that question is unequivocally yes they were um and then two you know were these celebrities um you know promoting and soliciting purchases in unregistered securities. And in my opinion, I think the answer to that question is also um, a yes. Now there's also chart, you know, claims of 
uh, of uh, UDAP unfair deceptive acts and practices violations at the the state level, and that's just you know revolving around um, you know kind of uh, general endorsement practices, right? Um, but I think at the, the heart of the matter of these is is these securities law violations. And by the way, if you're soliciting purchases in unregistered securities, that's a strict liability standard, right? Yeah. So you know you don't have to prove that you know that yeah, there's no mens rea requirement, okay? And so. And, and what that means is that, you know, these celebrity endorsers could be on the hook for all the losses, the total the, amount, the total amount, $8 billion, um, the, the total amount. So, um, you know, so there's a lot obviously writing, um, uh, on these, uh, on these, this class action. And as we said before, you know, for millions of FTX customers and, and, you know, customers in, in Voyager and elsewhere, you know, this is probably their best shot at getting anything, um, to be, uh, to be honest with you. So, um, you know, so, so certainly it's something to, to keep an eye on here. And that will be in Florida because I think Florida has the friendliest or not the friendly, not certainly not to these celebrities, but they've got the most favorable law for the customers in this context against the promoters of unregistered security. So that to me, yeah. I, when when we when we talk about all of this stuff and where's the industry going and all, all these platforms, listen, you could have you could have Bitcoin. You don't need to go to one of these platforms or exchanges. You could buy. You put it on your wallet. You have yeah. you know. So the 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 there is really, in my view, just two separate issues. You know, do these cryptocurrencies? You know, you say there's no fundamentals. How do you value them? There's no book to value. Whatever. You know, but do they have their place in the world? And, you know, does this whole, all, all this bad stuff happening with the FTX and the collapse and the fraud and the Ponzi schemes, in your opinion, is, that, is there a, a line of demarcation where you can say the cryptocurrencies in and of themselves do not suffer from all this Ponzi scheme, fraud, you know, over leveraged problems that have afflicted these platforms? Yeah, that's a good question. And before I I address that, I, I want to go back to your to your venue point. Um, you know, because I mean, you're right, and you probably know better than I would that um, you know, you know, Florida might be maybe you know favorable jurisdiction from a, a plaintiff standpoint. Um, but at least in the FTX case, um, you know, we now know that you know FTX's headquarters, the U.S. headquarters, was in Miami, and this uh, brand ambassador program, as they called it was run out of the Miami office by an executive that was based in Miami. And you have a sworn affidavit from um, a former uh, executive. Uh, I think he was head of compliance, uh, uh, Mr. Freeberg. I'm drawing a blank on his first name. Um, that, um, that states that fact, that Miami was where um, this whole brand ambassador program was, was run out of. So, um, you know, because this is one of the issues that the, the defendants had been had been uh, pushing back on was the, the jurisdictional question and that Florida didn't have jurisdiction over them. So I, I think that is now, um, you know, fully settled, um, you know, given that we now know that the, the whole program was run out of Miami. Um, you know, in terms of the broader role of of, of crypto, I mean, it, it's it's hard to predict. I mean, you know, listen, as I mentioned before, here we are 14 years. I mean, who would have predicted this is where we'd be, Right. Um, you know, this space has defied predictions from the very beginning. 
And so any type of prediction I were to make now, you know, fast forward, you know, two, three, you know, five, 10 years from now would probably be wrong, right? That's just the way this, this space has, has evolved. Um, yeah, I mean, to, to your point, right, you don't have to use these intermediaries. I mean, you can self-custody your crypto, right? You can have your own, you know, digital wallet. You can maintain your own private keys. Um, and that's generally the most secure way to hold on to your, to your crypto. But, you know, you're not going to get any yield um, that way. I mean, you know, there's a reason people use these intermediaries and it's because it's just easier. Yeah. It's more convenient. It's the same reason that I don't store, you know, cash under my mattress, right? Um, you know, this is just economics. This is comparative advantage, you know, and, and crypto kind of builds itself as like, well, you know, we're the solution to all these problems with intermediaries. And from my vantage point, intermediaries are providing a valuable service, right? And so I don't think intermediaries are going, um, certainly going away. And when it comes to the question of how do we regulate this space, I mean, that's where the focus lies, right? Is regulating the intermediaries because that's historically how we've regulated, um, you know, financial institutions and the financial systems through intermediaries. Um, you know, so crypto very well, uh, you know, I like to joke that at this point, it's it's like a religion, right? I mean, you know, it, it's even got its canonical text, the Satoshi white paper. And so the thing about religions, as we know, is that they can last for a very, very long time. So I don't think crypto is going away. Uh, there's certainly not an appetite at this point on Capitol Hill to, to ban it. Um, you know, so the question is, of course, you know, how do we, how do we regulate it? Um, I think post FTX, there's recognition on both sides of the political aisle that, you know, there needs to be, you know, some, you know, type of, of meaningful regulation, but you know, the devil's in the details, but, um, you know, when it comes to investing in it, I say, so I tell my students, look. And, and nothing I say should be construed as investing advice, but I will say this, treat it like you're going to the casino. Don't bring more than you're willing to lose. Yeah. This is an extremely volatile um, asset class. One of the reasons it's volatile is because in my opinion, it has no, um, no fundamentals. So, um, you know, so with that said, if you're willing, uh, if you have the, the willingness and the ability to take risk, then, you know, by all means, um, you know, but I think people need to be prepared to, to lose it all. And the future of regulatory workup. And to me, I think the main question as an investor in the crypto space is when are they going to decide whether these whether these cryptocurrencies are securities or not? And then how and then the fallout. I mean, is it possible that during these regulatory meetings they're gonna say, okay, we're gonna make a decision and it's gonna be a binding decision? I guess they could always somebody could challenge it you know, up to the Supreme Court. But I think that that's got to, you know, for the industry, that's got to be resolved sooner rather than later. Yeah, I mean, that's the the million dollar uh, question. Um, and it has been for, you know, a decade now, really, uh, is, you know, when it comes to cryptocurrency, are they, is, you know, is it a commodity or is it a security, right? Um, and, you know, that answer uh, has, you know, significant, uh, implications. And so, you know, not to get kind of too far into the, the, the weeds here of, of how, um, you know, our markets are, are structured, but, you know, at a high level, commodity spot markets in the U S or cash markets are not regulated at the federal level. Okay. And that makes sense when you think about it, right. You know, does the federal government 
need to be regulating a jewelry store, for instance, which technically is a commodity spot market or a live cattle auction? Okay, probably not. But the federal government does regulate commodity derivatives markets. Okay, so we have an agency called the Commodity Futures Trading Commission that regulates commodity derivatives markets. Now, they do have the authority to enforce, uh, uh, to take enforcement actions against fraud and manipulation in commodity spot markets. Um, but otherwise, commodity spot markets aren't regulated at the federal level. So applying that to, to crypto, what that means is because right now, these crypto firms, these exchanges are claiming that all they're listing on their platform are commodities. They do not need to be regulated at the federal level, right? They do not have to register with any federal market regulator. Now they have to register with an agency called FinCEN, the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, which sits within the Treasury Department. But that is strictly for purposes of enforcing laws around money laundering and terrorist financing. Okay, so you know, when we look at these crypto exchanges in the US, Coinbase, you know, Gemini, you know, you name it, they are not regulated in the way that New York Stock Exchange is regulated or the NASDAQ is regulated. Right. There's no requirements around segregating customer assets. There's no, you know, prohibitions on, you know, insider dealing or, you know, requirements around conflicts of interest. There's no net capital requirements. All right. There's no requirements to provide audited financial statements. I mean, if you're a public company, you do. But, um, you know, so, you know, again, the whole host of things that apply to a securities exchange don't apply to these crypto exchanges right now. Now. Let's go to the security side of things, because right now there is, um, you know, back and forth a, a, a debate. And unfortunately, we have a situation where, you know, Securities and Exchange Commission is having differences of opinion with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. What the SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, has said, and, you know, I think as, as folks probably are familiar with, you know, Gary Gensler is, is reviled by the, the crypto industry. He said, look, when I look at most cryptocurrencies, I see securities. Most cryptocurrencies are, are securities. And by extension, most cryptocurrency exchanges are listing unregistered securities, which, by the way, makes them operating an illegal security, an unregistered securities exchange illegally, right? So, why does he think that cryptocurrencies are securities? Well, it's through something that's called the Howey test, because our securities laws enumerate a number of things that qualify as a security, right? Things that we're familiar with, again, you know, stocks, bonds, you name it. But then it's got this term called investment contract, okay? And like, you know, and this is how law works, right? Like a lot of ambiguous terms, it, it fell on the Supreme Court to define what an investment contract is. And it did so in a case in, from 1946, I believe, uh, called SEC versus Howey. In this case, it actually involved um, uh, an investment, you know, a land Orange. contract. Yeah, oranges, right? In Florida, um, citrus growth. All places. <laughs> in, yeah, of all places, right? And of course, this is another point that frustrates the crypto industry to no end because they say, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that a case from the 1940s is what is being used to determine whether or not this fundamentally new technology and asset class is a security or not? And, you know, for the lawyers listening, the answer is yes, of course, because the law yeah. is flexible and it's flexible by design, as the Supreme Court has alluded to, right, uh, numerous times. And so what the, the Howey test uh, is a four-pronged test. All four prongs have to be met in order for an investment contract to exist. So number one, is it an investment of money? Two, is, it an, is that investment in a common enterprise? 
Three, is there an expectation of profit? Four, is that profit derived from the efforts of others? Right. So that's the principal test uh, that you have to apply to each cryptocurrency on its own. Right. So it's a facts, you know, it's a facts and circumstances test. So you can't just blanket say at this point, all crypto, all crypto is a commodity, all crypto is a security, because it's going to get down to the nitty gritty in terms of how this token is operated, how it was created. Right. Is there, you know, is there a central party, you know, behind it? Is it truly decentralized? Why are people buying it? Is that, you know, is there, why would they expect a profit? Or is there any marketing around the profit potential here? Right. Um, so it gets, you know, so there, there's nuance, of course. Um, and what, you know, I would think, and I think other people think too, is at the end of the day, Congress needs to kind of settle this once and for all, right? Um, you know, that these kind of endless debates is a commodity is security. It's not necessarily helping anyone. I happen to agree with Chair Gensler. I think that most of these uh, cryptocurrencies are, um, are securities. I think most cryptocurrency exchanges are operating illegal securities exchanges. Um, you know, but Congress can settle this once and for all. And I think, you know, what they should do is just, you know, say that crypto, you know, carve out a new definition, a, a new category of security in the securities laws, for, you know, for cryptocurrency and just say all cryptocurrencies are securities. We're going to give exclusive oversight over um, the crypto sector to the Securities and Exchange Commission, remove the CFTC entirely from um from the equation. And then you can let the SEC, if they feel the need to draft, you know, custom rules around crypto as they've done in other, other contexts. I think, uh, you know, one issue in particular is around disclosure, right? I mean, that's kind of the, the essence of our securities laws is that, you know, it's a, it's merit-based. It could be the worst idea for a business in the world, right? And the SEC is not going to care. They don't pass judgment on the quality of the business. All they care about is that if you're raising money from the public by selling securities, you're disclosing, right, the adequate risk, and you're disclosing the information that investors need to make an informed decision, right? Yeah. So from a disclosure standpoint, I think it's probably pretty clear that the information that an investor in a cryptocurrency would want is probably different than the information an investor in, I don't know, you know, Apple stock yeah. or Microsoft stock would want because crypto is different in a lot of ways, but the SEC has, um, you know, they have the authority currently actually, if they wanted to use it um, to develop uh, a custom disclosure framework, because they've done it for other, in other contexts, like uh, mortgage backed securities and other asset backed securities for, for instance. So, um, but I think, you know, this is, uh, you know, and, and chair Gensler, you know, he testified recently in the house and, and, you know, and he said that, you know, he thinks that, you know, he has all the legal authority he needs. He certainly ramped up enforcement actions in the crypto space. Um, you know, but I still think at the end of the day, you know, this is an issue that that Congress is going to need to weigh in on. Unfortunately, from my perspective, you know, they, they're not leaning into my idea. They seem to be leaning more into giving um, primary oversight over crypto to the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which which I think is a mistake for a variety of reasons. Yeah. All right. Listen, we've covered an enormous amount of ground and I have so many more questions I want to ask, but it's Friday. I know you're ready for the four-day weekend, Memorial Day weekend, and I just want you to promise me you're going to come back because, I mean, I want to talk about the proof of stake. Is it working? You know, the environmental issues, the mining, the having updates on these lawsuits. So maybe two or three months from now, you'll come back on. We'll finish this up or you, or you got it greatest. You know, there's always something to talk about in crypto. There's always something to talk, and it always seems to happen in Florida or Miami, I just 
Howie in the Hills, by the way. Last quick story. I was driving to Disney World with my new girlfriend many years ago. And it was the Daytona 500, about 100 miles away. I'm thinking, oh, my God, Disney World, Orlando, there's 2,000 hotels. I'm not going to get a reservation. I'll just, so sure enough, I get to Orlando. And the, the, the Daytona is so popular, everybody goes over to Orlando to get, so you couldn't, and it's midnight. And I'm with my new girlfriend. And I, I, I quote, unquote, I shit in my pants. Where am I going to go? So I just said, let's just keep driving north. And it's now like one o'clock in the morning. I'm getting bleary eyed. And the next thing I know, I run into the sign, Howie in the Hills. This was before I knew about the Howie test. And I'm like, what kind? <laughs> Am I hallucinating Howie in the Anyway, that's enough. That's the end of this episode of Cut to the Chase with Lee Reiner's fellow at Duke Law School, Duke Financial Economic Center. Thank you for giving us a lot of information, a lot of interesting information, a lot of helpful information. And enjoy your weekend. Thank you, Greg. You too. All right, folks, that'll do it. That's all for this episode of Cut to the Chase. But before you go, will you open up your podcast app and give us a five-star review? You can also leave a comment about what you liked most or other topics you'd like us to cover. And please be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming shows. Thanks, everybody. Be safe out there.